Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I don't think of it as adapting. I'm fanboying. I'm, I'm a fan of these things. I love them. And I sort of want to put something on the screen that explains why I love this. You know, look at this. This is what I think of it. That's what it is. It's about unrestrained enthusiasm accidentally resulting in a TV show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Screen After Reading. I'm your host, EW senior writer Maureen Lee Linker, and today we will be talking about HBO series The Time Traveler's Wife. This is a really exciting one for me because it was one of my favorite books in high school and left a huge impression on me. The Time Traveler's Wife is the love story of Claire Absher and Henry de Tamble. Henry is a time traveler, but not in the sense you might typically think of where he can control where he wants to go in time and space. He just is randomly hurtled through time and space into a new place. This causes him to meet Claire as a child while he is an older man uh, and befriend her. And the two really forge a relationship with each other so that by the time she's an adult, she has completely fallen in love with him and ready to meet him when he is actually closer to her in age because a future version of him is going back through time to meet the younger version of her. Very confusing. But in essence, it's a story about love conquering all, including time. We have a great lineup today. First, I'm going to be talking with one of my colleagues, Jess Leone, EW social media editor, about The Time Traveler's Wife, why we both love the book, what we thought of the original 2009 film adaptation, and how we feel this new TV adaptation compares. But mostly we'll be talking about Theo James's butt, so prepare yourself for that. And then we will have a panel with some of the folks behind bringing the time traveler's wife to HBO. And that is the series creator and writer, Stephen Moffat, uh, who probably many of you will recognize his name from creating Sherlock. Author Audrey Neffenegger, who originally wrote the 2003 novel that the show is based on. Series director David Nutter, who directed all six episodes of this first season. And then we'll also be joined by the two leads, Rose Leslie, who plays Claire, and Theo James, who plays Henry. And we have a great conversation about taking this incredible love story and translating it to the screen, why TV is a better fit for it than film, what Stephen and Audrey wanted to say about time and love and this relationship, how Rose and Theo interpreted that and uh, really used the book as their guide as they were telling this story, and much, much more. But first, let's go to our conversation with EW social media editor, Jess Leone. Let's give her a hearty digital round of applause and welcome her to Screen After Reading. Jess, I was 14 when I first read this book, and um, it, it made a very big impression on me. What was your first exposure to it? Mine was probably in high school, so my best friend did a book report on it, and because the movie had just come out. And so she did a book report on it. And she was like, you have to read the book because it's so good. And then you can watch the movie. So I read the book. And like you said, Henry ruined all the future men in my life because no one will ever compare. Mm -hmm. And then I watched the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, at one point I was at, let's be honest, I still, I still like the name. At one point, I was convinced I would name a future son Henry because of this book. I, I also that. remember when I read it, it was like the sexiest book I'd read at the time. Now, having reread it uh, more recently, I was like, oh, it actually isn't that sexy. <laughs> that was the thing, though, because like, I was a teenager and you were like reading about an adult romance. You didn't think about like... Anything past that, it was like, oh my God, they love each other so much. I'm so invested. 
they love each other in spite of time and space. Oh my God. I was like crying, sobbing. Like they found each other. They were always meant to be. It was a big thing for me. Yes, absolutely. We've kind of talked about it already, but like, why did you fall in love with the book when you, when you ended up reading it? I think I just loved the storyline. And I know a lot of people, very controversial, the storyline, people don't like that they fell in love out of order, but I enjoyed it because I didn't know what was going to happen. And those are the best books is when you cannot predict what is going to happen next or how it's going to end. Yeah, I, I love the way it bounces around in space and time and how they both know more about each other at different periods of their lives. So like how when he when Henry meets Claire, he already has known this adult version of her for a long time before he meets the child version of her. So she's meeting him when he has a bunch more knowledge of her. But then later when they meet again as adults, it's vice versa. Like she knows everything she's known about him growing up and he's never met her before. Um, And I found that so clever because I think, you know, the book itself is really about time and fate and can love transcend those things. And so I like the way that it sort of, is an Ouroboros like eating itself in a sense of like, you know, where does one's love start and the other begin since they both know and don't know each other uh, at the same time, kind of. That is the question too. It's like, it really is thought provoking because you're like the timelines of it all. I still question it because if he met her when she was younger, but he was older, it just, it's very confusing. If you think about it too long, I get very confused. Yeah, it's like would would well, I mean the book and the new show also kind of like establish that when she meets him again when they're both in their 20s mm-hmm. that he's kind of a jerk. So it's yeah. sort of like yeah, if she didn't fall in love with this other version of him, would they even have got together? That's the thing too. And so is there a first timeline where she falls in love with this assholey version of him (laughs) yeah i don't know and then it's like the the new show really leans harder into it than the book of like well i'm just waiting for you to become the person i know you can be (laughs) which is so sad when you think about it because it's like i don't love you now but i know that i will love you in the future so i'm gonna stick it out yeah i don't know and he is like i'm not the person that you want me to be but you're gonna turn me into the person that you want yeah, it's very, very complicated. But anyway, you mentioned uh, that you read the book and then you saw the 2009 film, which stars Rachel McAdams and Eric Bana. Yeah. What did you think of that movie? <laughs> well, okay, I love Rachel McAdams. So at that point, I was like a diehard Rachel McAdams fan. I was like, oh, man, Notebook, Mean Girls, like all that had already come out. So I was like, I have to see the movie. I loved her. I was obsessed with her. I was obsessed with her in that movie. I think she did a terrific job. She has not disappointed me. And Eric Banya, I had a crush on Eric Banya. So I was like, yeah, let's just go all in. Let's just jump headfirst into this movie. It's I would say it's a guilty pleasure of mine. I'll say that. But it's also mm. yeah. very sad. <laughs> yes, it is very sad. I mean, let's be honest. Eric Bana looks real good in those glasses. Um, R.I.P. Henry's glasses in the new TV adaptation. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, like I remember when I first read the book, I was like emotionally devastated. I was like crying for a mm-hmm. week. And the movie definitely re- recaptured that experience. It's for me, for sure. Was it the same for you? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. It was so sad. And even when you knew what was coming, I still was caught off guard almost. Because it's like most of the time when they do book-to-movie adaptations, you don't know what they're going to change. And so that was the thing that I had, a thought that I had when I went into the movie. I was like, are they going to change the ending? I almost feel like they can't, though, right? Because that's the whole point, right? You would think, though, but I would not put anything past Hollywood. They changed the ending of Allegiant. I'm still not over it. The Divergent series did not end <laughs> the way that it was supposed to, and I'm still mad about it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like, ultimately, this is a book or a story about the ways in which time is both fleeting and limited and also infinite. 
Um, and I think if you don't have that tragedy in the middle of it, you kind of cut the legs out from from under it. Yeah, for sure. But as you said, that doesn't mean Hollywood wouldn't do it. <laughs> well, have you been watching the new series on HBO Max? How do you feel it compares to the film? Because definitely one thing I didn't love about the 2009 movie is that I just felt like this book is too rich and has so much story to like fit into a two-hour movie oh yeah for sure I completely agree and what I love about the series compared to the movie is that you get more of Claire's backstory and you don't get that in the movie like the movie starts off with her meeting him once or twice in the meadow and then she's a teenager and she's married to Henry um I do love that the tv show dives into her teenage years, what happened, how it shaped her viewing of life, how she fell in love with him at such a young age to where you get to the point where she meets him in the library and she's already in love with him. You understand why. Yeah. And I think that the the series replicates that um, the way that we're constantly moving in time on the page, whereas the movie was much more linear. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Harder to keep track of. It's more enjoyable, I will say, because your mind is constantly turning. Yeah. And they do try to help you by doing the same thing that the book does by like telling you what ages Henry and Claire are in each scene that we're watching. Um, Well, how do you think Rose Leslie and Theo James compare to Rachel McAdams and Eric Bonham? This might be controversial, too, because I know a lot of people don't think they have chemistry, but I love them. I love Theo and I love Rose together. I love them, too. I I do not understand why people don't like them. I, I love them. And I get he has a bad wig. We're going to look past the bad wig. I don't care about the wig. I'm talking full on chemistry. I enjoy their banter. I think it's great. And I don't think that Rachel McAdams and Eric Banya had that type of banter. It was kind of just like Eric Banya was here and was like, okay, you say that I'm in love with you. Let's roll with it. Yeah, no, I love their banter too. And I mean, honestly, how can you focus on the bad wig when it's just Theo James' naked ass like 90% of the so time? Cool. I'm I'm not paying attention to what is on his head. <laughs> yeah, I never thought that I would see Theo James' butt as much as I have these past couple of weeks, but I'm not mad about it. So thank you, HBO. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen Moffat. And thank you, Theo, for your service. We appreciate it. Um, <laughs> no, I agree. I think, I think that's the other thing too, is that Stephen Moffat writes banter really, really well. Um, and that definitely serves the story here better. Um, I, tonally, the show is a little weird in places to me because the book is so romantic and serious and the show is a lot funnier, um, and leans into the comedy or the hijinks of some of the aspects of time travel a little more. And I don't know that it always works for me, but it's at least like trying to pull different things out of the book and, um, give you a lot of different tones and aspects of Henry and Claire's life together. Yeah, for sure. And to touch on that, I love that they bring in a little comedy aspect into it because it's such, I mean, it makes their relationship more real in my eyes. Because it's not all just like romance, I love you, I will do anything for you. It's like the fighting, the real life, meeting the fam, not getting along with the fam. (laughs) What do you think about um, their decision to move the timeline up and make it kind of happen where when Henry and Claire meet, it's more like aligned with where we are now, whereas... The original book actually did that. It's just that the original book was published in like 2003. So when Claire and Henry were meeting, it was like the 70s and the 80s instead of now I think they've made it like the late 80s and the 90s. Like, So what do you think of that time shift? I love it, honestly. I like watching a show and it being in present day. Um, And I think it works better with the actors that they got. I think Theo James and Rose Leslie like did a really good job of portraying the early 2000s and they fit that (laughs) time frame better. I can't imagine Theo James in the 70s and 80s. Um, That would have been an interesting (laughs) take. But I actually really enjoy it. And I, it's more relatable that way, I feel like. Yeah, I'm sort of on the fence about it. Like, I totally understand why they did it. And I think it makes sense from a storytelling perspective with the casting and 
just mm-hmm. have what kind of technology they have in scenes and things like that. But I do feel like it makes the stuff with Henry and Claire as a child read a little differently because I feel like the idea that like a young child in like the 70s would just be out alone on her property at like the age of six or seven and no one would know that she was meeting a strange man in the woods repeatedly, like feels very believable and true to what I have heard or seen in pop culture about how parents were in the 70s. And like, that is that is not the 90s. <laughs> oh, I do feel like, I don't know, I it makes it believable for me because she like came from almost like a neglected home. Like her dad was always like working. Her mom was like, mm. just depressed and not really caring about where her children were. And it was kind of what what was the what's the housekeeper's name was kind of like their basically parent or guardian and that's who she's like even in the well the second to last episode when she was like you're the one that I tell all my secrets to and it was like okay so that was her best friend as we're getting through all of the episodes uh you will see that it only ends halfway through the book so do you hope we get another season and get to finish the story I did notice that I was like we're barely on episode five and there's only six episodes in this first season And I did read the synopsis and it ends with the wedding. And I was like, that is not the end of the story. I need a season two. I'm going to say that right now. I need a season two. I need to see what this whole video cam situation is going on with Rose Leslie and Theo James, how he hasn't seen himself past 41, but he looks very old. I need to know. I have so many questions that need to be answered. And I think that, like you said, I think that there's so much substance to the book that they need to have more seasons because there's still so much more story to tell. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, I mean, I am kind of optimistic that HBO will renew it regardless of the fact that it wasn't particularly well-reviewed because there is just so clearly the second half of this story to tell. And obviously the second half of it is much more tragic, but you get so much more of like Henry and Gomez's friendship Mm -hmm. and relationship. And like you said, you get a lot more into Henry's aging. That that video camera thing is new. That's not in the book. And I, yeah, I I do also want to see the payoff of that and where they're going with that. Um, Yeah. So I still, there's still so much left to be seen that I really, I really hope we get to see it. Yeah. I want to know who they're talking to. And I feel like, it might be their child. I think I feel like that's a good guess. Yeah, I think so. But I guess we'll have to wait and see if we're going to get a season two to find out. You know what? They should because everybody on TikTok is obsessed with it. And you know, the critics might like it, but social media loves it. So just bring on all the Theo James content. Yeah, I mean, honestly, sometimes that's all you need uh, is is that audience fervor for a thing and if audiences are loving it then they should give us more of it (laughs) so i mean who doesn't want to sign up for another six episodes of theo james being plummeted through space and time and showing up naked who would say no to that (laughs) um before i let you go i uh, have been asking all of our guests some questions about adaptation and so is there a book Uh, that you love, that you have yet to see adapted, that you think would make a perfect movie or TV show? Ooh, yes, there is a teen novel out there. It's called The Premonition Series. It The first book is called Inescapable. No one really talks about it, but it is great. It has fallen angels. It has vampires. It has fairies. It has basically everything that one could possibly want. And I think that... It would make a great TV series, honestly. And with all of these, yeah. you know, Sarah J. Mass novels becoming movies and TV series, let's throw in the Premonition series, Inescapable, yeah. and make it happen. I was just going to say, I I know that you and I are both eagerly awaiting this Akatar series and um, whatever happens with that. I'm, I still just want to know casting, man. <laughs> yeah, that is my biggest – every day I wake up and I'm like, is it going to come? Because they started filming already, right? <laughs> I think so. 
I'm not sure, but yeah, I think so. Yeah, I see all those Reddit threads with the casting like assumptions and people think that Daisy Edgar Jones is Freya. And I was like, there's like this whole thing, like this theory, this conspiracy theory. And I was like, I wouldn't be mad about it. I, I wouldn't be mad about it either. I love Daisy Edgar Jones. That sounds great. My second question, I think I already know the answer because you alluded to it a bit. What is a book you love that you feel like just read the book. Do not ever watch the thing. Um, beautiful creatures. Fair. <laughs> also divergent. <laughs> okay. I mean, sometimes they just get it wrong. Exactly. And they did. They got it wrong. I'm I'm not saying Theo James got it wrong, though. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the ending should have stuck to the book. But also Beautiful Creatures. Beautiful Creatures was an amazing, like, I think it was five book series. But it was so good, but they tried to make it into a movie and it did not hit. Uh, well, RIP, beautiful creatures. Maybe someday, just like Time Traveler's Wife, we will get a redo and it will be even better and the story that the book really deserves. Uh, but thank you so much for being here today, Jess, and spending so much time and talking about Theo James Butt with me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> of course. Anything. Anytime you want me to sit down and talk about a hot man's butt, I will take the time out of my day to do it. Great. I know who to call. Fantastic. Um, everybody, that was Jess Leone, EW social media editor. Let's give her a, another remote round of applause for joining us today. And next up, we are going to have our panel conversation with the team behind The Time Traveler's Wife. And once again, that includes Stephen Moffat, David Nutter, Rose Leslie, Theo James, and last but not least, the author, Audrey Niffenegger. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Audrey, I'll start with a question for you. Your book was already adapted once. So what was your reaction to the prospect of kind of going through the process again? And, and how did this experience compare? Oh gosh, where'd you start? The time period from the original novel being published and the movie in 2009. It was six years and there was a tremendous amount of uh, different scripts, different people working on it, all kinds of craziness. And I was just kind of a bystander to it. I just kind of stood back and watched it and tried to learn something about how things work in Hollywood. Uh, so this time around, um, it started with a, me receiving an email from Stephen, who I already knew and who I'm a big fan of. And I got this email and uh, I said to my husband and my assistant, oh, no, <laughs> they're going to do this again. But uh, but then I calmed down and I thought, no, no, it's Stephen. It's going to be good. It's going to be all right. And uh, so I just kind of hung on to that thought all the way through. <laughs> For the rest of you, I mean, what was it about the book that inspired you and, and caused all of you to agree to sign on to the project? Stephen, why don't you start since you were the the brains behind this one. <laughs> well, I think Audrey's the brains. Um, uh, I uh, I read the book back in 2005, I think, when I uh, uh, read it, and I just absolutely loved it. Uh, and I, I loved it so much that I completely ripped it off in an episode of Doctor Who called The Girl in the Fireplace, because I'd love to. And I actually said to Russell at the time, uh, well, we should, do a, we should do a story like this. We should do a sort of time-twisted love story for Doctor Who. So I, I wrote that. And then in Audrey's next book, Her Fearful Symmetry, there's a character in the book watching the girl in the fireplace. So I realized Audrey was on to me. Uh, and for the rest of my time at Doctor Who, I was always doing little riffs on The Time Traveler's Wife with River Song. And I even had Doctor Who keep his spare TARDIS key in a copy of the book. Um, and when uh, Brian Minchin and I left Doctor Who, the very day we left, the day we went, uh, we went to the pub after the final mix, we... Uh, 
we sat together and he said, I, and he said, I think we should go chasing after the rights to the time traveler's wife. Cause I think that could work as a, as a TV show. And I agreed and we pitched and in time, I sent an email to Audrey that caused her tremendous dread. And I waited for a reply with a similar amount of dread. But uh, fortunately, she'd calmed down by the time she emailed. It was, and she was very nice. But uh, I, was, I was extremely nervous about it. Uh, I never had to send an email to Arthur Conan Doyle. Or at any rate, he never replied uh, when I adapted Sherlock. So that, that, that was easier. And Rose and Theo, what was it about Henry and Claire in this story that made you eager to explore their lives? For me, it... It was the kind of extraordinary fact that Claire is one half of a time-travelling couple and just how wonderfully complex a character she is. I, I remember when I was auditioning for it, when the email came through from my agents, the, the fact that it was this novel coupled with HBO, coupled with Stephen Moffat, on top, with, on top of David Nutter also being associated with the show, it was, um, it was kind of uh, an embarrassment of riches, really. So I did everything I could to uh, to try and try and impress on the audition tapes. Same for me when, when it came through and had the opportunity to try and, you know, audition for it, it, it had all these, these amazing elements to it. And um, the, the Stephen, the David and the HBO of it really made sense in a way. I had, I had never seen the film, not, not just randomly, but I had read the book and loved it um, back in my 20s, early 20s. Um, but that combination seemed to make sense because I remember loving the book and loving, loving the romance of it, but loving the undercurrent of darkness. So all those elements really seemed like, you know, a, a kind of perfect combination. And then reading the pilot, you know, what was so one of the great things that Stephen had done is he injected so much humor into it. And that's so true of the book as well. You know, Henry and Claire are both really funny and, and I love that. It was amazing. For David and Stephen, from a writing and directing perspective, what was it about the book that made you feel it was ripe for screen adaptation and a television series? Well, let me speak real quick. Uh, uh, sorry, let me speak real quickly. For me, how I got involved in the project was this. I, I finished Game of Thrones and I was out looking for the next project. And at Warner Brothers, uh, Peter Roth would let me kind of pick the projects I wanted to do. And we'd always have a joke about it where I had to fall in love with it. And... <clears throat> I used to, I, in high school, I wanted to be the next Barry Manilow. And so I was a big romantic, and I guess still am. And um, when I read the script, it was basically the most incredible uh, thing I've ever read. And it had all the elements of everything I always wanted to put in other shows that I do. But it was right there in front of me. And I felt so akin to it. I felt that I was, I was, I was breathing and living it. And it was so very real and so complex. But there's so much purity and so much caring involved in it. and it's just something that I had always wanted it's the one thing I said just yesterday I said that there's a line in a movie that uh, uh, an actress is telling Tom Cruise where she says I've loved you all my life even before I met you I loved the promise of you and you kept your promise well I, I loved the script all my life until it came in front of me and it just was really touching and moved me like crazy and Stephen did I mean clearly you uh, were very attached to the book and thought it would make a good TV series. Why was that? Um, well, I thought it was, I mean, I, I liked the film, if it's a good film, but the, uh, you know, two hours, two hours to do that story. Uh, it's really, a, a, it, it's, it's about emphasis. Um, you, I mean, I think it probably takes us two to three episodes to nail down the rules of time travel, according to Audrey. Audrey's version of time travel, which is very specific to Audrey. And you have to understand the rules. You have to be very clear about them. And if you expect that, that, that would take more than half a movie, frankly, to get that into the audience's head, uh, by which time you've got almost no time to talk about what the book's actually about. It's about marriage and it's about good marriage and it's about healthy love over time. That's what it's about. The time travel is a device uh, to uh, a prism through which you see that. And a way of reminding you that uh, love is inextricably linked to loss and all those other happy Audrey notions that we now have to live with. <laughs> um, so uh, I thought in a TV show has time to do that. It it can it can wander off. It can go on for a while. You can you can live with Claire and Henry for more than an evening. Uh, you know, it, I mean, it takes you more than two hours to read the book. Goodness knows. Uh, so uh, that, I just thought it, it felt like a natural for a for a for a TV series. 
I thought it was the right medium for it, other than books, of course. I mean, book is the ideal medium because that's what it really is. But I thought it would adapt beautifully, I thought. Fingers crossed, eh? <laughs> um, I'm curious, Stephen was saying you have a very specific system of time travel here. How did you devise that? How did you figure out your rules for um, how Henry's time travel would work? Um, back in 1997 and eight, when I was at the beginning of writing the book, um, I like to write things where I've changed one rule, maybe two, um, a more speculative fiction than science fiction approach. And so I thought, well, it's important that he be time traveling involuntarily, that he's not just some jerk running away all the time and having adventures without his sweetie. And so I thought, all right, um, the, the race to decode the human genome was much in the news at the time. And I thought, that's it. It's a genetic thing. He can't control it. It just dumps him wherever naked. And um, the other really important rule is that he can't go back and change things. You know, it's not back to the future. And uh, that is the difference between tragedy and comedy. Um, if he's just bipping around trying to fix everything in a sort of time police way, um, then you have room for it to be kind of funny and everything's okay in the end. But if he's like a regular normal person and that he makes mistakes and things happen and that's just how it is, then you're in the realm of tragedy. And I prefer that. Theo, when you were signing on, were you like, okay, but does he have to be naked every time? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wanted that. In fact, there, was, <laughs> there wasn't enough immunity. Um, no, it, it felt, <clears throat> you know, it's such a, it's a part of the DNA of the book, obviously. But what I liked about it and what I wanted to, impress myself onto the character is the nudity for me is dangerous you know he, he's, uh, he's as Audrey was saying he's thrown out of time and it expends a lot of energy it depletes him it's uh, an affliction and illness that he has to deal with I always kind of felt like it's uh, an epileptic fit times you know a hundred where where um it, it's it's a it's a real shock to his body. That's when he when he when he falls out of time. He doesn't know where he is, when he is. He's naked, which you know has its problems, but also in a practical sense, he has nothing on him, nothing to protect himself with, nothing to help himself with. So he he has to be the ultimate survivor, and 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 that part of it made makes it dangerous and um, propulsive, as opposed to like a a fun romantic um, mechanism. It, it's something that he has to overcome or survive all the time and I, I think that makes it really unique Stephen, having already of course dealt with time travel in your creative life what was it like wrapping your head around this different version of it and these new rules oh and i loved it and i i, I got i mean i i got from the page everything i was fascinating to hear audrey say all that but uh I, um, but I did get that. I got that from the uh, from the book, and I remember thinking when I read the book, "God, that sounds that sounds so realistic." I mean, given that time travel is nonsense, it sounds so much more realistic than uh, the, any version than any other version. I mean, the whole notion of changing history of Doctor Who popping back and fixing things—it's such nonsense. It only happens once. How could you do that? So. Um, uh, yeah, I, I had I, I had a good grasp of the rules from the book. And uh, as I say, I, I absolutely adored that book. But one of the challenges, particularly when you translate it to television or indeed to movies or the upcoming musical, heaven knows, um, is that you uh, that you you actually have because everyone is used to the Back to the Future version. Everyone's used to that. It's, it's great. Back to the Future is a fantastic film. And the, on the Doctor Who version, the Quantum Leap version, where you can go back and fix things, it's like a second goal. And this is, this is literally a story about no second chances. Today's what you've got. Right now is what you've got. So I, I, I didn't have difficulty wrapping my head around it uh, at all. I, I, I reveled in it. I reveled in it because what uh, it's, it's so well done in the book. You, you sort of buy into it as as a credible thing, as a real thing, a real problem, because it's presented to you as a difficulty. 
you know, and you know that he's naked, he's running, it makes him vomit. It's kind of, it's not Doctor Who popping out the police box, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, for all of you, how essential was the book in your prep and your process? I mean, was it something where you read at the beginning and then you put it aside and made it your own? Or were you constantly referring to it? Rose, why don't you start? I um so for some unknown reason I can't quite wrap my head around as to why but I actually when the book was released I had never read it so when the audition came through I realized that once I was once I knew that I was um going to be able to play Claire I read the book and lent into that in kind of shading in the background of Claire's upbringing and obviously then knowing kind of what happens to the two of them but I um I haven't seen the film and so I can't draw any comparisons on that and that has actually been a deliberate choice for me. I didn't want to overwhelm myself with too many variations of Claire. I wanted to hone in into the fantastic adaptation um, that Stephen has written for us and uh, as a result I wanted to do that justice but also know that um, I'd use the book for, for just for parts of my own mind to know that I was doing an all-rounded version of Claire whilst also staying true to to the adaption. David, for you as a director, how much were you turning to the novel? Well, I have to tell you this. I have to say that as a director, um, I need to have one source. I need to have the Bible. And to me, it really had to be the script. So I, I didn't want to come up with other, other options and other variations that I would think about or read or, or kind of, Conjure up because that may may uh, befuddle and uh, take out of focus my singular focus of wanting to tell the story well. So to me, I, I mean, I never read Game of Thrones novels either, and, and even after season five, when Jon Snow died, I didn't want to know what was going to happen in episode six. And I ran into President Obama, and he asked me, "So is Jon Snow dead?" And I said, "Yes, he is, sir. He's deader than dead." And then uh, a year later. He wasn't, so and my taxes are <laughs> checked out. But um, yeah, I have to keep that that gravity of, of the script, and I'll come back and of course read it uh, when I finish this. Theo, I know you said you had read the book a long time ago, so were you turning to it a lot? I reread it um, while we were, you know, the beginning of shooting because it was useful because there's so many uh, details which are useful for his history, um, which perhaps hadn't been in the script. Um, also some of the descriptions of him were useful. But funnily enough, I thought I would read the whole thing. And then I got kind of a hundred pages to, um, left of the, the novel. And, you know, it's, it's obviously what happens at the end of the book. Um, and I, I didn't think I would consciously do this, but I stopped reading it. I, like, I don't, I stopped reading it one night and I, I, I'll come back to it tomorrow. And then the next evening, I just was like, no, I'm not, I can't really finish it because I think it's because you know, the first season is about hope, ultimately. Obviously, there's tragedy in it, and there's a lot of pain in their history, but it, it's really about hope. It's about the two of them finding one another. And, and I didn't want to be in the space where, you know, you read the end, which is so poignant, but very, very, very sad. So, um, yeah, I read most of it, but not the end. I was going to ask, I mean, it's season one, so I presume Stephen it was your decision to end where we end about midway through the book but how yeah. did you arrive at that I just thought it was a good place to end the the, the first season uh you know with the, with the, the happy old wedding I mean I you know particularly in episode six yeah they go through the mill but uh but you know it's uh you know Audrey calls it a tragedy and that's correct but it's a tragedy because so much of the time it's happy you can't have a tragedy unless you're happy for a while you know you've got to have the good bit uh, and and so you know, I wanted them to have a, a right old party at the end and say, "Yeah, okay, you know, you're dancing on the edge of the cliff. You are definitely going to lose your footing one day, but the music's still going, so you keep dancing. That's it. That's part of the book for me. Is they're so vital and they're so alive and they're so alive to each other, and because they have a particularly intense knowledge that the end is coming, as indeed it is for us all, children, then we uh, uh, then th th they have such vitality because of it." You know, uh, Henry knows and lives. I, I, one of the things that when I was reading the book and when I was uh, writing the show, that I'd go through a little loop of thought all the time. I, I would sit there thinking, how does Henry cope with the fact he knows he's going to die? 
Well, the same way I do, the same way everyone in this conversation <laughs> does. It's a fact for all of us. We're not we're not singled out here. We're, but uh, so it's exactly the same thing. The, the most human thing in the world is to is to face inevitable doom and destruction by putting on the kettle or putting the kettle on and having a nice cup of tea. That's that's fine. That's that's how we live, and it's uh, and it's exciting and interesting. So it's a tragedy, but at the same time, it it can be a comedy. It can be all of that. Uh, and you know, I, you were talking about how how you use the book during. Uh, obviously, I go to the book a lot, um, but what I've been doing of late, because I know the story very well, I've read it several times, is I will actually because it's lying on my desk, and I just pick it up, go to a random page, and read it, and see if there's something I've forgotten, something just something that will stick in my head, an idea that I think, oh, that's that's got an episode in it. We could use we could use that idea. I used to do the same when, when I was working on Sherlock. I'd have the the Sherlock Holmes books, and I just flick through them and think, no one's ever done that bit. Let's do that <laughs> bit. Uh, so uh, uh, it's it's very present for me. Uh, the books very it's very important to me, and it's always a pleasure to read it, Audrey. And I'm looking forward to the next one if you ever finish it. No mm -hmm. pressure. <laughs> <laughs> it's done. <laughs> I know, but you said you had to write another chapter or something. I did. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's 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 really miserable of them. How dare they make you do more work? I'm I'm sure there'll be more bits and pieces, but that's I think it. Yeah, good. So. Oh, I'm really looking forward to it. Audrey, what did you make of um, truly taking the TV drama approach and sort of ending in medias ray of your story? Uh, well, I. I hoped that there would be more than one season. So the uh, the way it ended does kind of uh, let everybody feel kind of like woohoo. Uh, but you you know you know this is TV. You know there's going to be another season. So you know everybody will come back to mess around with these poor little characters once again. Um, but yeah, the the thing about the expansiveness of TV, I really appreciate how it can be both modular and ongoing. I think that for this particular book, that's a really good format um, because you can deal with, like the second episode, which deals with Henry and his mother, it, it kind of encapsulates certain things that are a little bit spread out in the book. And, you know, each episode kind of frames certain issues and then we move along to the next episode. And I think that the linkage is rather nice. I appreciate that. Well, the book was published in 2003, and we have changed a lot culturally since then. And, and I can imagine, Stephen, and all of you, when you were attacking it, that there were certain things that you felt might need to change or, or might be viewed differently. And I mean, you, you kind of sort of outright call out the possibility of grooming or, or that issue between Henry and young Claire. So, like, how did you decide to, to tackle those things? And, what you would change that has changed in almost 20 years versus what you would leave intact? Well, actually, I just I picked up the word grooming in order to throw it away. I mean, because it's not what happens. There have been people for years trying to lay that accusation on this story. And if you read the story, that is simply not what happens. By the time he meets the child, he's already married to and in love with the adult. His relationship with the child, like any sane adult, is a paternal one. Uh, you know, it's, it's this isn't a stretch. There's nothing, and there's no element of grooming whatsoever. Apart from anything else, Claire doesn't change much from this. You know, the six-year-old to the seventy-year-old. She's pretty much the same person. It's Henry who alters. Henry alters a lot. So, the, so it's. it's I, I put the word in to throw it away. That is not what happens in the story. Simply factually incorrect to say that. That that's what happens in the story. So, so it's always faintly uh, irritated me that uh, I, I compare it to this. If I look at a photograph of my wife as a child, which I have done quite recently, I adore that little girl because that's my wife. I'm, I love Sue Virgin. Well, I love anyone. So when I look at a picture of her as a child or see a little film of her running around, I know that person. I love that person. But there's nothing sexual about it because that's not a sexual being. To force everything to that one prism of sexual attraction and desire is is diminishing of what it is to be human. Love is a bigger thing than that. 
and uh, it is quite wrong to, to, to summarize it that way. Yeah, also when we shot it, it was a situation where, you know, uh, Theo and I spent a lot of time discussing what, you know, what, what type of things would be happening and so forth, and really came to the point of protection, uh, understanding, learning, and she'd get older and ask questions, and he would get uncomfortable here and there, but, but they really came across as a kind of big brother, a father figure, a, a confidant, and... Um, it was just, just very special. We were very careful about that to make us feel proper. An advantage of the book is that you can be inside the characters' heads. And so you know that Henry is kind of terrified of her when she's a child. Like, he's really cautious. He's, he's very, very careful and protective of her. Uh, because as an adult, he understands that this could all be really weird, and he doesn't want it to be. Yeah, what was it like navigating that for you and playing off? Rose is a 16-year-old version of Claire versus a 20-something version of Claire. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great device in terms of um, her maturing into a woman, whereas Henry is much older at that point, like a 39-year-old man. And, but uh, but to go back to what Stephen said, that how I framed it in my mind was with my own wife, which would be, in a similar way, imagining... You know, I've been with her for many years. We were a girlfriend and boyfriend, then we got married, with children, whatever. And then you jump back in time and meet that person as a young child. Of course, they're the same person, but they're a child. They're so, it's so completely different. So all you would feel is hyper, hyper protective. And I think that's what I, we obviously is in the book as well, but that's what was important in, in filming it. it. It's about protection. And, and that, as David said, causes a kind of a, a paternal love, um, which is very separate from the love of the adult love that they are when they're together as a couple. Rose, what was it like playing 16 again? I mean, you, you haven't done like a CW show where you're playing a teenager for yeah. 10 years of your life. So what was that experience like? I, um, I, it surprised me how enjoyable I found playing 16-year-old. And I think playing a 16-year-old, um, because I think what really helped me were the hair extensions. And I found myself rather nonchalantly just kind of before we would begin rolling, like just plaiting the kind of ends and toying with it. And that then triggered memories for me in my teenage years of kind of using my hair as a tool to kind of hide behind if I was feeling insecure, uh, wanting to distract, wanting to flirt, really kind of using that as, as, as a kind of mechanism to, to draw out what I wished to, you know, to happen. And, um, so, uh, it was very, very enjoyable. I also was, you know, I didn't want to kind of sell it too hard either to kind of adapt a, a kind of, a subtle physicality of of a younger woman, um, a kind of immature element, but without, you know, whilst also, yeah, while whilst also, um, yeah, doing justice to the character without her portraying her too too young and immature. You know, also with respect to both of them at different ages, especially with Rose, it was an amazing thing how she transformed when she was sixteen and walked out there, and and we were introduced to sixteen year old Claire. It was like I bought it immediately. Every attitude, every tone, every every motion she made, it was incredible. And then the older she got, the complexities came to, to four. And it was just amazing. And, and Theo really was working with you know the closer age ranges and so forth. And he had each of them had different opinions, and each of them had very specific matters and speaking and tones and, and attitudes. And it was just amazing. I actually hired a guy by the name of Terry Notary who spent a lot of time with both the actors and. He uh, taught the people how to walk like apes in Planet of the Apes, and those Terminator films and things like that. But he also can talk to actors about what you're like when you're 40, what you're like when you're 20, what, what your, not just your physical action, but where your head's at, as a Cro-Magnon, almost uh, evolutionary standpoint. And I thought that was really helpful for the actors. It was. <laughs> it was. Yeah. We were, um, sorry, Theo, I'm speaking for both of us here. We were... Um, the first, before we actually began filming, uh, we had about three weeks worth of rehearsals. And that's when we, um, spent time with Terry. And, uh, no, I found it, I found it incredibly helpful. And it kind of laid down a, a confidence and a foundation to approach these different ages with, 
yeah, there was structure there now. I kind of knew what I had to lean into and, and I found it very beneficial. Yeah, yeah, same. I mean, it's, 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 it's tricky in a way because you're, you're playing the same person, but age informs so much about personality, about physicality. And as Rose said, you know, you don't want to over, overplay your hand. You don't want to start anchoring things with, you know, I've got a limp or, you know, a crook leg or whatever. I mean, that's the extreme version, obviously. But, but what is true is it has to, pretentious as it sounds, it has to come from, from your brain, from inside you, how you think about the character. And that then lends itself to physicality. So you can't, you can't anchor yourself in, in, in pieces of, you know, oh, I'm going to change the voice because that doesn't feel authentic. What feels authentic to me is believing you're that person enough so that, for example, with Henry, when he's older, he's able to look someone in the eye with more confidence that a younger version doesn't because he's a bit more chippy, but he's also a bit more nervous. He, the older version takes a little more, more time to consider a question before he has to answer it. He doesn't need to fill space like a younger version does. All, all these little things kind of add up, hopefully, to, to, to the same man, but a different version of the same man with, with age and time. Well, the book and the show very helpfully have title cards or, or headings that tell us what age Henry and, and Claire is in each sequence. But was it tough for you, Rose and Hugh, to keep that straight? Did you have sort of touchstones or, or tricks to help remind you, okay, here I'm 28 and he's 40, or or he's 20 and 40 at the same time? <laughs> Uh, I um I remember kind of speaking to our script supervisor pretty much every day just to help my memory and to reiterate some certain facts within Claire and whether some elements have kind of happened to her when she does meet Henry again at this age. So there was a lot of kind of trying to keep track of where they were in their journey. There was also a part of me that kind of decided to relinquish some sort of control on staying on top of their story and where they were at simply because you know the shooting schedule was fairly chaotic and uh and presumably kind of living a life with henry would also have its uh its kind of manic moments as well well it was important very important for us to schedule it so that for instance theo wouldn't have to play two roles in the same day it may have a little bit but not too much as rose as well as rose too so they could have Kind of breathe, play one character one day, and the next day play someone else and be able to play off each other. Yeah, very nicely. David really helped with that because David would help me in terms of just little reminders here and there. Um, because it was discombobulating to say the least. Because you know you're cross shooting something as all TV does. Then you've got a story about time travel. Then you've got Stephen Moffat's story about time travel, which uses it in a great way as a device, but as a narrative device. But it means you know you're it, it's uh, you're you're all over the place, but also the you know you, we had kind of physical markers as well, which helps. You know, young Henry's got long, floppy hair, and, but the uh, but being able to play Henry as a single age for one day really helped me because it meant that in the morning I knew I was playing the 28 year old version, and you start again as pretentious as it sounds, you kind of start getting into that version of the character from the moment you wake up and you're feeling the young version you're, you're making crash jokes in the van when you're coming in and then the next day you're the older guy and uh you know you're pretending to read the new york times and stuff so yeah it helps <laughs> um and what was it like playing opposite yourself theo is that the first time you've done that it was the first time i've done that yes 100 percent. It, it it was great but it was uh it was a you know it's a dance Definitely. The first time we did that was pretty early on in the schedule, and it's episode four, this, you know, great sequence of scenes where the whole gang's there, and there's two Henrys and all the other characters, and they're all um, interacting with both of them. And, you know, we had to spend quite a lot of time figuring that out, you know, choreographing it on a kind of basic level, but then beyond that, thinking about how different these two men are and how they move through the world and how other people respond to them and what happened in filming and what is present in um, in Stephen's writing which is so fun as well as the, these two people are the, exactly the same people they have the same DNA they're the same atoms but they become almost like bickering older and younger brother which I think is a, is a great device and we try to use that as much as possible Did each of you have a favorite age to play whether it was like the wig or the physicality or, or something else entirely. 
I totally embraced the 16-year-old version of Claire. I really enjoyed playing her. And once again, it, it, it kind of surprised me knowing that kind of I was looking forward to it as much as I was during during the scenes and playing her at 16. It was just there was a looseness to it whilst always having this undercurrent of kind of um, uncertainty and still trying to figure herself out and... And there was play to the 16-year-old version. And, and so I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I kind of threw myself into that. Uh, I, I kind of like the older version because he's uh, so wry and, and uh, sardonic. But uh, I, I remember reading, I can't remember which script it's in, but uh, the description of him. He's like a silver Henry Fonda. So that's pretty great. And nothing like <laughs> him, but maybe I could end it. <laughs> <laughs> Audrey. Tell me more about your experience in this process. I mean, I know you said Stephen emailed you, but did you look at scripts? Did you get to go to set? I know COVID has complicated things. Like, what what was your role here? Uh, so, yeah, I've been a real COVID hermit. So, yeah, my role mostly was to uh, not think about it until Stephen would get in touch. And he sent me the six scripts and... Uh, I got up the nerve to read them, and that was actually tremendously reassuring because I thought, okay, not only has he um, been faithful, but he's also been original. Um, because if you were just faithful, it would be really boring and kind of uh, it wouldn't have any life in it. So the in the translation, it has to gain something, and so Stephen had given it that extra Stephenness. And then watching the two episodes that I've seen you know, Rose and Theo and all the actors and David, they've all put their own thing to it also. And so it's, it's become a new thing. And that is the joy. Um, I mean, this wasn't exactly a collaboration because I wasn't standing around having opinions about things while it was being decided. But uh, it is in the sense that I felt as though the spirit of the book had made it into the TV thing, and so that was that was actually exciting. I love to see, I love to be surprised by something that was mine, and now it's ours. That was very cool. Rose and Theo, did you ever reach out to Audrey with questions, or did you feel like the script in the book gave you everything you needed? I never did reach out to Audrey. No, we met for the first time in Chicago, and that was at the tail end of the shoot. Um. I felt that everything for for me to feel like I was doing Claire justice, I felt that Stephen had provided everything that I then needed to portray his his version of her. Um, so I actually felt, and and I I knew that I could always lean on David, I could always lean on Stephen, um, and as a result, I felt confident to kind of continue in this vein of of who she is in the script. And um and just kind of be kind of narrow minded in that respect that or tunnel vision rather that if I ploughed everything into the script version I could then hopefully do that justice. Um, I I did, but Audrey never returned my calls. No joke. <laughs> no, I I didn't because you know similar to what Audrey said actually in a way this you have the book which is you have all the material there that's the original you know piece of work and then you have Stephen's uh, very specific script uh, then you have David as a source so uh, there's a point as an actor where you kind of I guess you kind of have to forget a little bit because you've got to bring your own ideas to it you've got to bring your own uh, thoughts and interpretations of it so you can't be you have to obviously honor the material but you you can't be beholden to it because otherwise you, it might make you you know second guess yourself nervous about decisions you're going to make so Using as a, a case study, Stephen, I wanted you to talk a little bit about this transformative process and, and making the property something new. Um, and I think a great example of that, maybe a silly one, is that there's this throwaway line in the novel about a 16-year-old Henry taking advantage of an opportunity that no other young men <laughs> have had. And in the show, we keep coming back to it as like a, a punchline or a thing that Claire finds 
ridiculous. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a great example of how you, you could take one sentence from a novel and, and build a whole world on top of it. So can you walk me through that process and, and that decision a little bit? Well, to be fair, it's, it's, it's one hell of a one sentence, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would give that entirely to Audrey. I mean, that's such an extraordinary moment. And I, I can't remember precisely the wording. It's something I, I sort of put a version of it, if you'll pardon the expression, into Henry's mouth, which is um, that, well, I'm not gay, but you would, wouldn't you? And I just thought, oh, God, that's so terribly true but in but it, it's it wasn't a decision to make it more of a linchpin of the show or anything like that um it, it was just that i think that's something that would come up in conversation a few times once you in an unguarded moment have admitted to it i think your your wife to be is going to mention it and i flashed back to it in episode six because i wanted to queue up what i thought was quite a good joke from uh from Henry's dad, which was uh, using Audrey's line when uh, when uh, Henry's dad asks Claire, you know, what do you see in my son? He, she says, well, he's exceptionally good in bed, which is a line from the book. And of course, I, I, I had the opportunity for Henry's dad to say, well, I know he thinks so. <laughs> so I was just, I just think you would have the piss taken out of you for the rest of your life if you get caught out doing that. But it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderfully real moment from the book, I think, which uh, everybody references that. Of all the email that I've gotten from readers, uh, that occupies a lot of people's minds. You know, <laughs> what exactly was he doing with himself there? And I'm like, well, use your imagination. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, I first read the book when I was 14, and it definitely went way over my head. And now rereading it this time, I was like, oh. (laughs) Over your head, I see. There we go. (laughs) All four of you have, of course, done adaptation before, whether it was Thrones or Sherlock or Divergent. So what appeals to you about working in that world? and, And how does it differ from doing something wholly original in terms of of source material well for me uh the adaptations i've been involved in which i suppose is not that many but it's more than i sort of remember i suppose dracula and sherlock and uh jekyll and hyde and this it's purely i i don't think of it as adapting i'm fanboying i'm i'm a fan of these things i love them and i sort of want to put something on the screen that explains why i love this you know look at this uh this is what i think of it um, you know, it's, I mean, I, I would, I think of myself as somebody who t- tends to write original things. I just realized my CV doesn't bear that out very well. Um, but, uh, yeah, that it's just, it's just enthusiasm for a, you think, oh God, can I have a, can I have a go of that? That's a great idea. Can I have a, can I have a turn? Can I try Dracula or Sherlock Holmes or the time traveler's wife? You know, so that, that, that's what it is. It's about, unrestrained enthusiasm accidentally resulting in a TV show. For myself, um, it was really a situation in which I've done a lot of superhero origin uh, pilots and things like that, and I would only do those if I could create a reality. For instance, with Smallville, this wasn't about Superboy. This is about a young man who had these abilities that he was learning about, and he looked in the mirror and sometimes saw an angel and sometimes saw a monster, and there were things he couldn't have. He couldn't have the girl he loved and, and those things. And he was a teenager. So I wanted to make him very accessible. That's very important. And I think that in anything to get an audience to care about, about what you're doing, you have to create a sense of real, reality and a sense that, to involve them. And to me, this script had so much of that. And uh, it, it was a situation where creating that reality, for instance, even the, the time travel. You know, uh, how are you going to do that? What, what kind of visual effects and so forth? See, they said nothing. We're not going to do visual effects. And I said, exactly. We don't need to have that. That's a, that's advice. We don't have to have that at all. And, uh, a couple of things. One thing was that when I read the script, I got to page 30 and I wrote down Rose Leslie on the cover of my script. And for David, Theo, I'm so chuffed to hear that. How lovely. For Theo, um, I was cutting a pilot, aerial pilot many years ago and I was watching this show next door to me and there was some young guy in New York City and I got, I attached to this handsome guy. I said, who is this guy? And years go by and things happen and so forth. But then when this script came to me and I read it, I thought of Theo and I said to myself, this is a script that Theo needs to do. 
because I want the audience, I want everyone to know how damn good he is. And he's just phenomenal, as they both are. And Rose and Theo, what was, how did this compare to, to other book adaptations you, you've worked on? Um, uh, I, thanks, Big D. That was, that was very nice of you um, to say about Rose and I. I, I would say, I mean, as actors, we have less of a choice, you know, with, with this, we're just saying, you know, please have me. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I guess, uh, you know, on a more general level, a book provides so much of a wealth of material. And as an actor, it's the more, for me at least, the more material you have, the, 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 the better, because you can fill out your character. You can live and breathe it as much as possible. Um, so it, to, to, to have a basis of a, a piece of, you know, uh, literary fiction is, is better than not for me, because you have more. Mm. I completely agree with you on that. That completely. There's, um, I suppose there's not really a kind of like tactical uh, approach from me in in only wishing to do adaptations of books that I love. It's more to do with the opportunity that presents itself and the fact that, you know, if you're able to be a part of a fabulous story, then why not do everything to that you can to, um to yeah, to be a part of that. Amazing. Well, thank you all so much. I really appreciate all your time. And, and this was wonderful. And I think this is such a beautiful adaptation of a beautiful book. And I've said for 20 years that if I had a son, I would name him Henry because of this book. So um, thank you all. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Take care. And that was our conversation with the team behind The Time Traveler's Wife. Be sure to check out any episodes on HBO Max if you missed it while we wait with bated breath to see if HBO is going to give this baby a second season. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of Screen After Reading. Don't forget to bookmark it so you know where to come back to. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me, at the Maureen Lee. This episode of Screen After Reading is hosted by Maureen Lee Linker, produced by Maureen Lee Linker, Clarissa Cruz, Chanel Johnson, and Sammy Junio. Edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>